As China chooses its new leadership, demonization of the country has gone into overdrive in the corporate media over the last week. A key component of this has been increasingly strident advocacy for so-called economic decoupling from China. And in fact, just ahead of China's Communist Party Congress, the U.S. government unveiled a harsh blow to a critical sector of trade. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. We are very excited to have Professor Richard Wolf join us for a regular weekly segment where we discuss the biggest stories relating to the economy, the state of the working class, and the crimes of big business. I'm Walter Smolarik, filling in for Brian Becker. The Socialist Program brings you content three days a week thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com slash the socialist program. We appreciate all of your support and encourage you to become a patron today if you enjoy listening to the show. Richard Wolff is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work and the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. You can check out that and all of his work at rdwolf.com. Professor Wolf, so the Chinese Communist Party just wrapped up its national congress. The congress takes place once every five years. It chooses the new top leadership for the Communist Party and for the country's government. And so this has been the opportunity for the mainstream corporate media in the United States to really go all in on this new Cold War narrative, the demonization of China, China is out to get you, and we need to spend lots and lots and lots of more money on weapons because of it. But another big part of this, a central feature of the media commentary, the commentary from politicians that we've seen in the last few days, relates to this big theme of economic decoupling. What does that concept mean And what does it mean specifically for working people, both in the United States and around the world? Okay. Basically, decoupling is the opposite of coupling. And coupling in this story refers to the cooperation, and that's really what it was, between China and the United States over most of the last 40 years, roughly the 1980s through to the present. And here's how the coupling worked. It was, to begin with, mutually beneficial. The propaganda nonsense now that somehow the Chinese ripped off the Americans in the process is silly. It was advantageous to both sides. Otherwise, they wouldn't have done it. That's clear to anyone who isn't already on the boat to beating the drum now that, I guess, demonizing Putin is finished. We now move over to Xi Jinping until the next headline from Ukraine. Then we can go back to Putin. The rest of the world looks upon this uh, demonization of individual leaders as the bizarre quality of American politics and not much else. Here was the way that the coupling worked. China invited American corporations producing goods and services 
for the American market and for the rest of the world, but the American business community mostly played to the American market because it was the world's largest, say, back in 1980, overwhelmingly so. And the Chinese said to the American corporations, and by the way, they said this to British, French, German, Japanese, and other corporations, come here to China. We offer you two things. The most important, a well-disciplined, well-educated, incredibly cheap labor force that can and will work in your factories, in your offices, for way less than you are now paying American workers. So it'll be more profitable. Number two, as you come over here and as you employ our Chinese workers, we will be building up a well-paid, better than we could do ourselves, working class that will become an important market for you. So not only can you come over here and get the profitable advantage of low wages, you will also get the profitable opportunity to become a seller into one of the fastest growing mass markets in the world. And for the last 25 years, China has been the largest and most profitable market for any capitalist to be involved in. That's why General Motors sells more cars in China now than it does in the United States, and I could give you 50 other examples if I had the time. What did the Chinese get in return? Number one, they were able to employ millions of people that they were bringing off of the countryside, the rural areas, into the cities of China, and they were having a hard time finding jobs for all these people, and bringing in foreign employers solved part of that problem. Number two, they were able to offer their people a rapidly rising standard of living because the foreigners paid better than they were paying their own workers for a while. And by having all these companies in China trying to sell also to the Chinese people, you could provide them with rising standards of living, quality commodities they could buy in the stores of China. And the third thing the Chinese got were trademarks, patents, access to Western technology. They often cut deals with American companies and said, you can come here, you can make profit off cheap labor, you can make a profit off selling into our market, but we want something in exchange from you, and that is sharing your technology, sharing uh, your ways of doing business that we can learn from and speed up the industrialization of our own country. For 40 years, this worked well for both sides. American corporations moved their production from the United States to China in record amounts, cashing in and making profits like you never saw before. The last 25 years of stock market growth are unthinkable here in the United States were it not for the zooming profits driving up stock prices, and those profits were based on exploiting cheap Chinese labor to make a complex story simple and go to its core. So successful was all of this that China's economic growth, which was doing quite well, thank you, before all of this happened, 
did even better after it happened. Now, it's gone up and down because capitalism is an unstable system, and the Chinese, by becoming the exporter of the world, by bringing industry to China and selling the output all over the world, the Chinese, of course, made themselves vulnerable to the ups and downs of the business cycle globally. And so they've had a a history of economic growth punctuated by ups and downs, but they've done a fantastic job. Their system of mixing roughly, just by rough numbers, half of their economy, government-run, government-owned enterprises, the other half of the economy, private capitalist enterprises, either owned and operated by Chinese citizens or owned and operated by American, British, Japanese, and others. And then all of this presided over by a communist party has been the recipe that has enabled China to say with the truth that for the last 30 years, they've grown faster than any other economy in the world, and they've grown three times faster than the United States, which is why we're at the situation we're at now. The Chinese have demonstrated their ability to learn the technology that they asked to be shared with them, to become so good at it that they could outdo their teacher. They could outperform in high-tech areas, even the leading high-tech enterprises here in the United States. So to make, again, a long story short, over 40 years, a record time in human history, they went from one of the poorest countries in the world to an economic powerhouse. They are the only serious competitor the United States not only has today, but that the United States has had for a century. The Soviet Union may have have been a political adversary of importance or a military adversary of importance. It was never an economic adversary of any importance at all. And that's true today, too a statistic that Americans don't hear often, although they should. The GDP of Russia is $1.5 trillion in a recent year. In that same year, the GDP of the United States is $21 trillion, and the GDP of China is $16 trillion. China and the United States are in the same league. Russia never was and is not now. And so what has happened is that the balance here in the United States between those companies that have made a fortune and continue to make a fortune being active in China, who called the shots for most of the last 30 years because it was in their interest and in their profit sites to do so, have now been pushed to the side in favor of a group of companies in this country for whom China is a competitor and they're afraid that they're losing the competition, and they want the government to come in, and they turn to the likes of Trump as a Republican or Biden as a Democrat, and they basically offer a deal. We will support you politically if you support us and stop this cozy relationship with China because it is destroying us. It is wiping out our industry because the Chinese can do it better than we can or at a lower cost or in a number of cases, both. And so you're seeing a 
playing out of a struggle that is first and foremost inside the United States between those who are profiting from the coupling with China versus those who are competitively frightened by China and want to decouple and stop buying goods from China, stop the cozy relationship, stop the ability of Chinese companies to access means of competing with America. So when Mr. Biden a few weeks ago, for example, committed tens of billions of dollars to the microchip industry, well, all of these things are justified by saying, well, we have to deal with the threat from China. That's mostly a BS. It's a convenient cover for switching from having politicians doing what the companies want that make money in China versus politicians pandering to those companies who want to suppress the competition from China. You know, it used to be settled wisdom in the West that an open market, a free market, government playing the minimum role is the best thing for the world economy. That's called neoliberalism or globalization. Notice how quickly it's changing. Here in the United States, the government is stepping in. It's running trade wars and tariff wars and sanction wars and targeting whole industries and companies and subsidizing American chip producers, for example, so that hopefully they can use that money to beat the Chinese in the competition. Whatever you think of American policy, the shift is very dramatic. The decoupling going together with a massive bringing of the government into a regular activity in our economy on a scale we haven't seen for almost a century. Used to be the wisdom was, don't let the government in, they'll mess everything up. Well, now we're hearing, bring that government in, it'll save us. We must do it. We have to fight China. There's a very elaborate justification for a switching of sides in the United States. Nor is it done. That is, nor is it yet decided. The companies that are making a lot of money in China, they don't want to lose their position there. They will, and they already are, fighting against the other American companies who are gung-ho to fight against China. Meanwhile, the Chinese look upon all of this and are trying to figure out which way is it going to go. Are we going to be able to go back to the mutually profitable coupling that we had for the last 35 years when there was almost no saber rattling between China and the United States, both nuclear powers, Or is what the future holds for us a growing decoupling in which a U.S.-based part of the world will be fighting against a China-based other part of the world? And here's my last point, because it's so important now as it becomes the foreground of American politics. The world is not what it was. The position of the United States has been shrinking. Our empire is shrinking formal and informal. Our relative size as an economic unit is shrinking, not so much because we're getting smaller, but that other parts of the world are catching up and or overtaking us. You can see it in the lining up of who's on what side in the Ukraine war. And if you've missed it, let me make it real clear to you. 
the major allies of Russia right now in that war, and when I say war, I mean more the sanctions than the military, which is really secondary here, the economic sanction game. Russia's allies are China, India, Turkey, Iran, and a whole bunch of other countries, more or less. That's more than half the population of this world. The United States is not the dominant player it once was. And decoupling has at least as many threatening implications that you won't hear about because the drumbeat now is to go in that direction. So you have to demonize Xi Jinping on the one hand and downplay all the risks and dangers involved in decoupling. One example, the United States working class shifted over the last 30 years from buying its consumer goods from American companies to buying the overwhelming bulk of them, the clothing, the appliances from China and from the rest of the world. If we decouple, those goods and services either will not come here anymore or they will cost a good bit more. That's going to negatively impact the working class of this country in ways nobody is talking about, but may be as big or bigger than anything being done now by the inflation or the rising interest rates. Any honest discussion of politics in the United States ought to be bringing all of these issues into the balance before we lurch off into an antagonism with China, even while we have one with Russia, even as our relationships with a whole bunch of other countries deteriorate, we're going to find ourselves dangerously isolated. Well, thank you for laying out that history, Professor Wolf. I mean, I think those are all extremely important points to consider. One other piece of the prevailing logic, you know, the common wisdom among the ruling elites as they pursued this initial coupling with China in the late 1970s and the 80s, intensifying in the 90s, was that as this process played out, as China was integrated into the global capitalist market, and as a private sector developed in China, right, you know, as a capitalist class developed in China as well, there would be the restoration of capitalist rule inside of the country, right, that this would lead to a final overturning of the socialist system of government that had been in place in the country since the revolution in 1949, and that the system in China would be replaced by something like what existed in Russia immediately after the fall of the Soviet Union, where there was uninhibited capitalism, totally unbridled rule of the quote-unquote free market, you know, oligarchs take over, and the country's government becomes extremely weak in the face of this, right? China would become a compliant sort of neo-colony in the capitalist world order. But that did not play out, right? You know, the economic benefits to a significant sector of American capital definitely accrued. They definitely got those benefits. But the political outcome ended up being quite the opposite. In fact, the Chinese state, the Chinese Communist Party, was strengthened as a consequence of this tempestuous economic growth, and now are actually moving in perhaps a different direction in terms of their economic policy. But anyway, so I, I think that is really a key factor that swung the balance back in favor of the forces who are arguing, well, actually, China primarily should be viewed as a competitor, not an economic partner. 
you know, one concrete way this has played out just in the last couple of weeks is that pretty much exactly one week before the Communist Party of China's Congress commenced, the United States rolled out one of the harshest economic measures it's taken so far against China, and that's new restrictions on the trade in microchips. I learned this doing research for this interview. I was really surprised, but China actually spends more money importing microchips than it does importing oil. Microchips are an absolutely essential part of the economy. And of course, especially as it relates to technology, high tech. I thought this was an important thing to draw out because you know the high tech sector is one of the key battlegrounds where this decoupling or battle over decoupling is playing out. Talk a little bit more about that. I mean, why is the high tech sector so important here, especially when we consider that China had been in recent years or decades, you know, lower on the production chain, lower on the sort of the value added ladder? Sure. Microchips are important in a real sense, in terms of being key ingredients to the production of a whole host of modern electronic equipment. So they are a a valuable product needed all over the world. They are also very important symbolically. They are the symbol of what is now high tech. And the United States, having lost its position as a major producer of many, 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 many commodities, over the last 30, 40 years. Commodities now produced not at all in the United States anymore or produced here mostly as an assembly process with the components produced in other parts of the world because they can do it better or cheaper or both. So high tech became the symbol of that part of American capitalism that is dynamic that is growing quickly, that is generating wild wealth. The big wealth is now in people who make enormous use of high-tech. Either they produce high-tech things or they use high-tech in their production process. That's why they're famous in that way, You know, whether it's, it's Bill Gates or any of the people who have used computers, robots, artificial intelligence, and so on. So it's important for the Chinese as a symbol of their having arrived. And they have devoted enormous resources to developing that industry. And they relied on the coupling, just as the United States did. The United States brings in all kinds of crucial raw materials, rare earths, produced products, And, you know, it's just as important to have cheap clothing and cheap appliances for your workers to afford, because if you didn't have those cheap things from China, those workers would be demanding much higher wages to afford the more expensive products that compete with the cheaper products from China. China is crucial to everything that happened in the American economy. You decouple, you lose all of that more or less. Will the United States be able to source things elsewhere? To some degree. Will the Chinese? Yeah, to some degree. Both sides will adjust. Both sides have the capacity to adjust, both in terms of their internal production systems and in terms of those parts of the world they can still rely on. So, This is a question of both sides who gained from the coupling now having to struggle to get through the decoupling. 
what is clear is that there's really no advantage here to the working classes of either country. We here in America, if we're deprived of what the Chinese produced, yeah, we may get it from somewhere else, but the reason we got it from China was because they either made it the best or they made it the cheapest, and that's why we got it, so it isn't going to be as good and it isn't going to be as cheap, and the same applies in reverse to China. In terms of the earlier argument you mentioned about how if we work cooperatively with China, they'll become a nice, docile, middle-class country. Let me be blunt. That's BS. That's popularizing advertising lingo. That's telling you about a product by only telling you about what's good about it and never telling you what's bad. That's what advertisers do. But that's not honest, and that's not really what we want. We want a balanced assessment. The companies that were gung-ho to hire cheap Chinese workers and to get the permission to do that and to sell into the Chinese market and to overcome all the hostilities that had grown up between the United States and China once the communists there won their revolution in 1949, they came up with this silly argument dressed up by a handful of professors to make it look profound that we should do this because then they won't be the nasty communists that we've painted them to be. I don't think they spent 10 minutes on that idea. Some copywriter in Madison Avenue came up here. Here's a good argument. Another reason why you can get the government to let you move your factory over there, maybe give you a subsidy to help you pay for it. It's profitable for you. That's why you're doing it. But you don't say that to the government because they're not supposed to help you be profitable, but they are supposed to help you in the noble task of making the Communist Party of China into a, a replica of the Democratic Party. And the same BS, Madison Avenue junk, is what we're getting on the other side now. The companies that want the government to help them because they can't compete against the Chinese on their own because they're losing, as they have been for years, they want the government to come in and rescue them. But they can't say, give us billions of dollars to rescue us. That looks terrible, and the mass of the American people will see what that smells like. So instead, they have a lovely story to tell. Evil, evil, evil Xi Jinping, we have to hold him back before he does all the evil, evil, evil things. You get all of that over and over again so they can get their subsidies to beat the Chinese now that that's the new story to tell. But nobody should be much fooled by this sort of thing. It doesn't go with the history. It doesn't jive with what we've gotten out of the relationship in the last 40 years. We were coupled and we didn't have nuclear war threatened every week. We didn't have the Americans fighting with the Chinese over Taiwan. We didn't have the uh, American fleet of our Navy in their ocean on their back porch there. I mean, we didn't do those things. Now we have this competitive attitude and we're worried about the war and we're worried about the nuclear confrontation. We ought to look hard at what the costs are of competing versus the costs of that coupling that we had for the last 40 years.
We're going to have to leave it right there. We've been joined by Professor Richard Wolf. He is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work, the author of many books. The latest is The Sickness is the System. When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself, you can check out all of his work at rdwolf.com. You've been listening to The Socialist Program. We bring you content three days a week thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com slash the socialist program. We appreciate all of your support and encourage you to become a patron today if you enjoy listening to the show. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.